You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Midtown. In this series, we are following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke so that we may experience true flourishing. Good morning. Peace be with you. Great to be with you here. My name is Timothy Paul Jones. I have the privilege of serving as one of your pastors here at Sojourn Midtown. It's a joy to be together today. I want to tell you a story about somebody from several hundred years ago, from some time ago. A woman in Africa, her name was Monica. Monica. And she had a son who had rejected Jesus Christ. She had rejected, the son had rejected Christ. She was a faithful Christian and she prayed and prayed and prayed for this son. And she was convinced that if she could keep her son close to her and in Africa with her, that this son would eventually come to faith in Jesus. And that was what she prayed for. And she prayed constantly for her son. Well, her son became a a popular teacher in a particular area in Africa, and then he decided he's going to go to Rome. And in the midst of all this, he'd gotten involved in all sorts of immorality, in all sorts of heretical beliefs and false teachings, and she was brokenhearted because her son was going to go to Rome, and she was convinced if he leaves Africa, if he leaves me, then he is going to follow a path that he will never come to faith in Jesus. And so she begged God, she begged God, don't let him go to Rome. Don't let him take this ship. And she went with him all the way to the coast. And then it became clear to him that if he would not stay in Africa, she was planning to follow him all the way to Rome to be able to be close to him so that he would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he didn't want that. And so he lied to her. He said, in fact, he said, there's a church service going on here in Carthage tonight. You should go to that church service. I'm not leaving on the ship until tomorrow. And so she went to that church service. And while she was in that service, he boarded the ship and left Africa and headed to Rome. He abandoned her. And he talked about later in his autobiography how he looked out from the boat and he saw her coming to the shore and her falling on her knees, screaming and crying because he had left. And she felt like by him leaving that he would never hear the gospel and never respond to the gospel and never follow the Jesus that she loved. She had asked God, God, please, please bring my son to faith in you. Please keep him here so that he will trust in you. And she begged God for that and God had done something different, allowed something different. I want to ask you, have you ever been there? Have you ever been there on that beach with our sister Monica? Not literally, but have you ever come to that point in your life that you have said to God, God, please do this. God, I want you to do this. God, this is the right way to go. And God doesn't grant your request. Or God doesn't do what you think he should. Have you ever been there? Where God didn't do what you thought he should do. Now, here's what I want you to see in this text. In this text that we're going to look at today, over and over throughout every part of this text, God doesn't do what we think he would. God doesn't do what we think he should. God does something different. And so I want you to enter into this text with me and imagine the scene. Jesus is there amid the olive trees of the garden. He has just cried out to his father, prayed to his father, and said, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Is there any way 
that this plan can be accomplished without me going to the cross? And the answer from his father is no, this is the way to go. This is the way that I have determined throughout all time. And so Jesus stands up and he says to his disciples, my betrayer's coming. And as he's still speaking, the, the footsteps approach. This mob approaches with clubs, with sticks, with torches, with swords, and amid them is Judas. And Judas walks up to Jesus and says to him, Rabbi, a little bit of irony there, because that means teacher. And if Jesus is truly his teacher, he wouldn't be doing what he's doing, but he walks up to Jesus and does this, and he kisses Jesus. Now remember, in their culture, that was the common way of greeting people was to kiss them. This is a reminder that not everything in the Bible is something we necessarily should do today. Don't walk up to somebody and kiss them, okay? Because it's gross and it's weird and in some states it's a misdemeanor, okay? So don't do that. But this is something they did in their culture. This was a way of greeting in their culture. And Judas walks up to Jesus and kisses him as a greeting. And Jesus' first word to him is friend, friend. Now, that's an interesting word because this word in the cultural context, what this word meant is someone with whom you have something in common. It's somebody with whom you have something in common. But Jesus has used this word twice before, and it's important for us to understand the ways that Jesus has used this word before. One of those times is in Matthew chapter 20, and it's part of a parable. And what has happened in this parable in Matthew chapter 20 is that there has been grace given, in fact, a bonus, we might say, given to some people who didn't work as long, and one of the workers is angry, and the master says to that worker, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Take your money. Be satisfied with what you agreed to. So it's somebody who has received grace but is complaining And the second time it's used in the Gospel of Matthew is Matthew chapter 22. It's in the context of another parable, this one about a wedding, and it's people who who are invited to a wedding who don't necessarily deserve to be there, and there's one of the guests who has refused to wear his best. And so he shows up at the wedding, having been invited, even though he didn't really deserve to be there, and he shows up wearing clothes that are not his best clothes. In other words, he's not showing respect for this as a wedding. And Jesus, or the master, the king, says to him, friend, friend, how'd you get in here? Why are you doing here dressed this way? But here's what you see in both of those. When the word friend is used, what it seems to indicate is somebody who has been given grace, but rejects the one who gave them the grace. And that's what we see in Judas. Judas has received grace, but he is rejecting the one who gave him the grace. And Jesus says, do what you came to do. Or another way to translate that would be, why do you do what you do? But whatever it's, however we translate that, one thing is very clear. Jesus is the one in charge. I want you to see that clearly in this text. Jesus is the one in charge. Jesus is the one that's asking the questions. Jesus is the one who's declaring, why are you doing this? Jesus is the one in charge. It looks like that Judas or the crowd is in charge, but in truth, Jesus is the one in control. And if Jesus goes with them, it is not because they have overpowered him, but rather it is because he has chosen to go even in the garden. Jesus is the one with all the power. And here's a vital truth I want you to see. Simply because you can't see how God is in control doesn't mean that he isn't in control. 
Just because you don't see how God's in control doesn't mean he isn't in control. In this text, it looks like Jesus has lost control. And yet the truth is that though it looks like Jesus has lost control in truth, it's him that's running the show. And when we look at the Gospels, it is so easy for us to say that God is in control, God's acting, God is working. When we see angels that are singing at Jesus' birth, it's easy to say that God is in control when the Spirit descends on Jesus at his baptism. It's easy to say that God is in control when the wind and the waves obey Jesus, but it's harder to say God is in control. When in chapter 2, we run across parents weeping for children that Herod has slaughtered. It's harder to say God is in control when his friend betrays him here. It's harder to say God is in control when he's hanging naked and bleeding on the cross. But God is no less in control in one situation than he is in another. And in your life and mine, it is easy for us to exalt God's power and exalt the fact that God is in control when our family is healthy when our life is filled with friends, when we wake up happy most mornings, but it is harder. When you go through several months that are lasting longer than your paycheck, it's harder when you're screaming to the heavens for your child to survive. It's harder when you're fighting for your marriage and you don't even know if you want to fight for it anymore. It's harder when you wake up every morning and there's a darkness in your soul that just won't let go. It's harder but it's still true. Now, we should and must recognize that there are some things that God allows and he permits, and there are some things that God directly does, and God never does evil in any way, shape, or form. But we also must recognize nothing falls into your life that has not first passed through your Father's hand. And God is no less powerful in times of pain than he is in times of triumph. It looks in this text from a human perspective like God has somehow lost control. But God hasn't lost anything. God could have stopped this. God could have changed this at any moment. And instead, what he does is he weaves what looks like failure into his own glorious and beautiful plan. And he still does. He still does. That's how God works, is to weave what looks like failure into his own glorious and his own beautiful plan. Simply because you can't see how God is in control doesn't mean he isn't in control. We start to see that even more clearly as we begin in verse 51 and following where it speaks of how at that moment one of those with Jesus reached out his hand, drew out his sword, he struck the high priest's servant, cut off his ear, and Jesus told him, put your sword back in its place. All who take up the sword perish by the sword. Or do you think I can't call on my father and he will not provide me here and now with more than 12 legions of angels? How then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out to me with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I used to sit teaching in the temple. You didn't arrest me. But all this has happened so that the writings of the prophets will be fulfilled. You see, the disciples seem to expect that Jesus will use his power to stop this crowd. And when he doesn't, one of his disciples concludes, Jesus must not have the power to do this. Jesus might not think about this for a moment. 
Think about the things that this disciple has seen. He has watched Jesus speak and control the wind and the waves. He has seen Jesus turn a few pieces of bread and a few fish into an all-you-can-eat buffet. He has watched as Jesus has healed people, and suddenly he becomes convinced, if I don't intervene, Jesus can't do anything at this point. i got to do something because Jesus obviously can't do anything about this crowd. And so... He pulls a sword out and goes into what he seems to think is hero mode at this point. Hello, my name is Simon Peter. You tried to kill my master. Prepare to die. And he starts waving his sword around at this point. Now, this is presented in the text not as something heroic, but as something pathetic. Because think about this. This is Simon Peter we know from the other Gospels. He knows how to fillet a tilapia. He does not know how to take off somebody's head. He's a fisherman. That's what he does. And so when he tries to do this, he has a swing and a miss, and he misses the guy's head, and all he takes off is a little bit of an ear, is all he gets. This isn't heroic. It's pathetic what he's trying to do at this point. And Jesus says, put it up. Put it up. You live that way, you're going to die that way. God has a better way, and what we see is that God didn't use his power in the way the disciples expected because he had a plan greater than the disciples imagined. Remember that. When God uses his power in a way you don't expect, it's because he has a plan greater than you imagined. And that sets you free to be a person of peace. That sets you free to do that. Because Jesus is telling them here, my kingdom is not of this world. It doesn't come about by violence or coercion. It comes about by spirit and sacrifice and resurrection. Now, chances are you've never been tempted to draw a sword and go running in with a sword to try to defend the kingdom of God. Although it's been 2021. Who knows? Maybe you have. Let's just assume you haven't, okay? Let's just assume that. But we are tempted to pick up the sword of our words, And we live in a culture that through likes and retweets, it rewards words that are sharp, that are sword-like in our culture. So we lash out and we attack others and we convince ourselves in the process that what I'm doing is defending God's truth as we do this. Hear this, brothers and sisters. Rage and panic and hot takes are not the way of Jesus. They're not the way of Jesus. Especially because of what we have that the disciples didn't. Because, spoiler alert, we know that Jesus dies and is raised from the dead. I know we're not supposed to say that to Easter until Easter, but there we go. Spoiler alert. It's going to happen. We have a, a Savior who has left the tomb behind, and the empty tomb guarantees his victory and thus sets us free from panic and rage. We don't have to give in to that, and yet we do so often. I saw a title of a podcast episode recently, and the name of the podcast episode was, Can Christianity Survive the Current Threat? Can Christianity Survive the Current Threat? You know, folks, I serve a Savior who survived death. I'm pretty sure Christianity can survive a current threat. 
I serve a savior who not only checked out of the tomb, he paid his bill and mine too. I'm pretty sure that he is able to be able to keep the church going. I serve a savior who said that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. I'm pretty sure the church is going to survive. We serve a savior who was raised and who is exalted in the heavens. I'm pretty sure the church can survive. It's ridiculous. It sounds silly. This can Christianity survive the current threat? It's as silly as a fool, as a fisherman, flailing around with his sword, taking off part of an ear. It's silly. And yet, we want to try to do the defense of Jesus, so to speak, using the tools of the culture instead of the tools of the cross. And Jesus calls us to a better way. You see, the best way to defend Jesus is to declare Jesus. Do you realize that? The best way to defend him is to declare him through our words and through our lives. There's a hero in church history from the 19th century named Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And I say he's a hero to me because he was gospel-centered and yet he was deeply concerned and had an impact in his city for social justice and economic equity and care of orphans at the same time. And here's what he said at one point about how to defend the good news of Jesus. He said, suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads, they had to defend a lion. Open the door, let the lion out, he'll take care of himself. Preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let the lion out. You see that? The best way to defend Jesus is to declare him through our words and through our lives, and that sets us free to proclaim the gospel and to do the implications of the gospel of seeking justice and righteousness and holiness with calmness and confidence. That's why we can be gritty disciple-makers in our city. It's precisely because we know that we have a Savior who has already won the victory, therefore we can dig in and get dirty for the sake of his kingdom. Jesus says to Peter, you live by the world's weapons, you're going to die by those weapons. And don't you think... If I wanted to be defended that way, don't you think, Simon Peter, that I could do it myself? Don't you think? He says, I, I could, if I wanted to, I could call out 12 legions of angels to come and help us. I could call out 11, one for each of the remaining disciples, one for myself, and a legion in their culture was 12,000 troops, 6,000 frontline troops, 6,000 reserve troops. And so if you multiply that times 12, I don't do math, but it's a lot, okay? It's a big army. It's a much bigger army than they had around Jesus that were around him at this moment. And so he says, I could do this if I wanted to. But why didn't Jesus do this? I love why it says he didn't do this. It's in verses 54 and 56 both. It says, I didn't do this. The reason that we don't do this is because of the fact that the scriptures must be fulfilled. Verse 54 and verse 56, it says, the scriptures, the writings of the prophets must be fulfilled. So which scripture is he talking about? We might be talking about Isaiah 53, 12, where it talks about that the Messiah would submit to those who are are oppressing him. But I think more likely he's speaking of the entirety of the Old Testament. You see, the whole Old Testament in all of its books, in every syllable of the Old Testament, it leans with eager expectancy toward an expectation of Jesus to come. And he's saying, I will not do it this way because the Old Testament points to me doing it another way. 
And that's what the plan is and has always been. And what you see is that even here, Jesus possesses all the power. And what that reminds us of, when God does things that aren't the things we would do, when he doesn't do what we expect, is that whenever God doesn't use his power in the way I expected, it's because God has a plan greater than I ever imagined. We need to hear that. Because most of us in our lives, at some level, we are living our lives under layers and layers and layers of pain. Layers and layers and layers of disappointment. Of those times when we said, God, you could have done this. Why didn't you? God, you could have stopped this. Why didn't you? We live under the burden of those layers of real and authentic pain. And it's saying that I'm not trying to trivialize the pain we feel. It's real. And it's something that there is reason for us to feel it and to lament what we've experienced. But at the same time, at the same time, in the pain of Gethsemane here, what we see is that our pain has a purpose because our God has a plan. Our pain always has a purpose because our God always has a plan. He's showing us here how in Jesus Christ, in the pain he is getting ready to experience, in the pain he is experiencing even here, how God had a plan, and that was the reason for the pain. For you and for me, our pain has a purpose, because our God has a plan. And we see things turn even darker as we move into verse 56, the second part of it, where it says, then all the disciples deserted him, and ran away. Those who had arrested Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had convened. Peter was following him at a distance right to the high priest's courtyard. He went in and was sitting with the servants to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false testimony against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they couldn't find even find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward who stated, this man said, I can destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, don't you have an answer? These men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you, under oath by the living God, tell us if you're the Messiah, the Son of God. You said it, Jesus told him. But I tell you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he's blasphemed. Why do we still need witnesses? See, now you've heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spat in his face and beat him. Another slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah. Who was it that hit you? It says at the beginning of this text, the disciples fled. I want you to pause on that for a moment. The disciples ran away. There's a sense in which, for the first time in all eternity, Jesus is alone. Because before all time, he and the Father and the Spirit enjoyed perfect fellowship before time ever began. And then he became incarnate. He was born into a family that loved him, that cared for him. He became an adult and he called disciples to himself and they lived in community with one another. He had three friends, Peter, James, and John, that were especially close to him. He has known nothing but fellowship. 
And suddenly, he's alone. But not just alone, he's worse than alone. He is alone with people who want to abuse him and destroy him. Have you ever felt what Jesus is feeling right here? That stomach-chilling recognition of, I am vulnerable, I am alone. And in his humanity, that is what he had to have felt. Yes, we know that in his divinity, that, that, nothing, that he was God throughout all of this time. We know that. But his humanity was real. And in his humanity, there is this stomach-chilling recognition of being vulnerable and alone as his friends flee into the night. And it says that Peter followed from a distance. From a distance. Close enough to see, but not close enough for it to cost him anything. And he sits with the very ones who seized Jesus. Peter's denial that comes later, it starts here. You see, denials always begin with distance. Nobody all of a sudden, in in certain instances, just says, oh, I'm going to deny this truth about Jesus, or I'm going to deny his sovereignty over this part of my life, all of a sudden without anything precipitating that. That's not how it happens. Denial starts with distance. We put distance between us and the truth of God or the presence of God in some area of our life, and and distance then leads to denial. To follow Jesus from a distance is ultimately not to follow him at all. And while Peter is there distant from Jesus, Jesus is brought before the high priest Caiaphas. Now, we know Caiaphas from history outside the New Testament. He, for almost 20 years, cooperated with the Romans to try to keep things under control for the sake of his own wealth and power in this area, in Jerusalem in particular. In fact, we even have found, archaeologists have unearthed his his bone box. That is to say, where his bones were kept after his death. It's called an ossuary. And you can see on it, especially if you were to compare it to other ossuaries of their time, how elaborate that is. Do you see the elaborate carving on that? The capacity to do that, to have something that fancy, that beautiful, came from him cooperating with the Romans to give himself wealth and power. This is a man who doesn't want a Messiah. He doesn't want a Messiah who is going to cause anything that's going to upset the wealth and the power that Caiaphas enjoys. And so he begins calling witnesses, They have to come up with two witnesses, at least two, that say the same thing independently, because that's what it tells them to do. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, it says you cannot condemn somebody to death without you have two witnesses that both agree. And so they have this whole string of witnesses, and they can't get any two witnesses to agree. And finally, they have two that say something similar. And what they say is he said he could destroy the temple and raise it up in three days, which Jesus never said but which he could have done. That's the funny part. He never said this, but he could have done this. And in fact, in some sense, he will do this because he has become the true temple of God and he will be raised after three days. And it says throughout all of this, he is silent. He's silent. This even is a fulfillment of scripture, Isaiah 53, 7, that it says that just like a sheep before her shears is mute, is silent, so he opened not his mouth. There is a suffering so deep that words don't help. Have you ever been in that type of suffering? 
a suffering so deep that words just don't help. In the musical Hamilton, there's my favorite song. This one called It's Quiet Uptown. It's got these words in it. There are moments that the words don't reach because there is suffering too terrible to name. There is, are moments that the words don't reach because there is suffering too terrible to name. And that's what's beginning here. He is silent. There's a place that the words don't reach because there is a suffering too terrible to name. And finally, enraged, the high priest Caiaphas says to him, I adjure you, I command you, answer me. Are you the Christ? And Jesus affirms it, but doesn't quite affirm it. He says, you're the one who said it, not me. You said it. You said it, not me. But I will tell you this. And then Jesus quotes Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And he says, there's going to come a time when the Son of Man, referring to himself, is going to come with the clouds of heaven in judgment. He's going to come in judgment. He quotes the Old Testament. Messiah is going to come in judgment to claim his kingdom. And if I were writing the script of this story, if I were the one who was in charge of the script of how God does things, here's what would happen when Jesus announces the Son of Man's coming in power and glory and judgment. Jesus would put out his hand and the hammer would fly. He'd catch the hammer. And then Caiaphas's head is going to go flying out the door. Jesus turns around. There's lightning. There's fire. He's glowing. He's shining. He steps out. And all those people in the courtyard who sees him, whoa, wow, bam, bam, they're all, all of them defeated. That's how I would write the script. Now, here's the thing, is that that will eventually happen. Not the Caiaphas hammer and head bit, but, but the judgment of Jesus, okay? It's eventually going to come. It will happen just not here and not now. It is going to happen, but not yet. And that brings us to a crucial truth. Simply because God doesn't act in your time doesn't mean he won't act in his. Simply because God doesn't act in your time doesn't mean he won't act in his time. So be patient. He will come in the clouds. He will bring righteousness and judgment. Those who have not turned to him, who have, have stayed in their sins, God will punish that sin. God will do that. But he will do it in his time and not in mine. So what do you do when God doesn't do what you thought he would do? Remember, just because God doesn't act doesn't mean he can't. Just because you can't see the plan doesn't mean there isn't one. And just because you don't see his plan now doesn't mean you won't see it later. And that brings us back to Monica. that I started out talking about Monica of Africa. Because you see, Monica kept praying for her son. And her son did go to Rome and went deeper into sin and deeper into rebelling against the truth of God. And he eventually went from Rome to Milan, and that son's name was Augustine, Augustine of Hippo, the greatest, most significant theologian in the entire history of the church. And while he was in Milan, he was at one point walking through a garden, and he heard a child singing a song that went, Tola lege, tola lege, take up and read, take up and read. And there was a New Testament, he picked it up and opened it. 
And it fell open to a passage in Romans 13 that said it's time to leave behind the old life and turn to the new. And he trusted Christ. And here's what he said later, many years later. He said, oh Lord, you refused to grant what my mother requested in order to shape me into what she was asking for. You refused the request of her lips to give her the desire of her heart. And that's how God works often, is we don't see it in the way we expected, and we don't see it in the time we expected. But whether in this life or the next, he does what he promised to do, and he has a plan, a plan for me, for you. He has a plan. So what do we do with this? There's three things I want you to practice this week as a response to this text in the Word of God. First one, pursue peace. Pursue peace. When you're tempted to give in this week to the sword of words of rage and fear, say to yourself, Jesus has already won. Jesus has already won. Jesus has already won. Because the way of the cross is not the way of the sword. Second truth I want you to practice this week is to close the distance between you and your Savior. Where are the areas of your life that you said, I, I, I want to be close to Jesus here, 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 and here, but right here I want to keep some distance between me and Jesus. Where is it? Where are you putting distance? Denial begins with distance. Close the distance. Say, God, I want to be close to you in every area. Close the distance between yourself and your Savior. Lastly, cling to his sufferings. Cling to his sufferings. We can never get too close to the cross or cling too close to the reality of the sufferings of Christ in that place. The most haunting part of this text is the last part of it, where it says they began to spit in his face and they beat him and they were slapping him and making a game of it. A game. She said, can you guess the name of the person that just hit you? Can you? Can you, get, can you guess the name? What's the name of the person who just struck you? And as I read that every time, I'm reminded of the Chronicles of Narnia in which Aslan, who stands for Christ in that, is being killed and beaten by the white witch. And it says they were shouting and cheering as if they'd done something brave, though had the lion chosen, one of those paws could have been the death of them all. And that was true for Jesus. One word. It was the death of them all. And yet there he stayed. And they played this game, who struck you? There's an answer to that question, who struck you? We all did. We all did. We all did. Who struck you? We all did. And yes, he knew who. Not only of those that were around him, but of everyone who would ever trust in him. He knew their names. Who struck you? We all did. We all did. And yet even here, here he is 
taking all the punishment that those who have trusted him deserve and all the pain and the abuse that those who have trusted him will ever experience. It's all there. He is taking on himself your pain that you've experienced as well as the punishment that you deserve. Who struck you? We all did. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And that is our comfort. Cling to the cross. He took your punishment for you, and he suffers your pain with you. So cling to that. Let's pray. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.